Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, as uh, Mark said, my name is James, and um, it's really a pleasure to be here with you guys. Um, I actually see some, some real lovely friends who actually come from where I originally come from, a, a little town called Gontre, which is called King, King Willemstown. Um, but I grew up there for a good, uh, a good chunk of my life, and then was in East London for a little bit, and now I've been here in South Penn for the last five years. Um, and I get to serve as part of the leadership team, too, on our Next Gen Ministries. And it's really been a privilege to be able to be there and to serve alongside wonderful men and women. And uh, it's my joy to be able to open up God's Word to you guys today. So my prayer is that He will speak to us and um, that He will challenge us, too. So in our series this, 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 uh, this, this morning, um, we're in week five in our series in Exodus. And what we've been doing is we've been journeying through this book... And we've seen that it's essentially about the story of redemption. It's about freedom from slavery and bondage through a mediator and into a new life with God. And we followed the story of Israel, how they were slaves in Egypt, but how God, through Moses, as their mediator, brought them out of slavery and into new life with him. And this morning we're in Exodus 14, which is essentially the quintessential story of redemption in Exodus, but also in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Exodus 14 with me, and we'll read from verse 5 together. So when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go, and we've lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready, and he took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so they pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Harahoth, opposite Balzaphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Egyptians to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front of them and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. 
the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last night, last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh, and had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and the Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, their servant. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your whole word speaks of Jesus, of his grace and deliverance. And Lord, I pray that this morning we would see your son, that our eyes would be open to this great salvation which is ours, how you've worked in history and how, Lord, you're still for us today, that you set us free and you let us live free as well. So God, we pray for your help. To your glory and in your name we pray. Amen. So as I said before, Exodus chapter 14 verses 5 to 31 is all about redemption. It's about God's deliverance and Israel's salvation. And at the core of it, is a pa- at the core of our passage, is all about getting out. Getting out of slavery and crossing over into new life with God. And so the question that I want us to look at this morning, and hopefully we can answer, is what does Israel's salvation here in Exodus 14 reveal to us about our salvation in Jesus Christ? And in order to do this, our passage is structured around three questions. Number one, what are we getting out of? And hopefully we'll see that it's actually bondage that has many layers to it. Number two, how do we get out of it? by crossing over by grace. And number three, why can we get out of it? Because we have a mediator. So number one, what are we getting out of? Would you look with me again at verses five to nine? So when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and we've lost their services. Basically a really nice way of saying we've lost our slaves. So he had his chariots made ready, and he took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers all over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites. So early on in Exodus, we had read that God had acted. He'd been faithful to his promise, delivering the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. Following his mighty act of deliverance and judgment in the form of ten plagues, 
which culminated ultimately in the Passover and the death of the firstborns, which we looked at last week. Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron in Exodus chapter 12 and says in verses 31 to 32, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and your herds, as you said, and go. He'd let Israel go. They had been delivered. God had intervened and rescued them from the hands of their oppressor. But now in our passage here, we see that Pharaoh has changed his mind. The old slave master wants his slaves back, and he's coming after them to drag them back into bondage. In other words, Israel had been freed, but they were not yet free. Their old slave master was coming after them again. And I wonder if this is not, if this doesn't speak to our Christian experience as well. You know, the Bible says that when you become a Christian by putting your trust in Jesus and his atoning life, death, resurrection, and ascension, you're freed from sin immediately, forgiven instantly. That legal charge against you, that judgment that you deserved, dropped in a moment. Paid for because Jesus took the cost for you and for me. We're freed. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're freed. Truly. But as you continue to live out your Christian life, what you find is that at times you feel the pull back into your old life, back into old addictive habits, back into old destructive behaviors, and back into old damaging ways about thinking about God, about others, and about yourself. There are times as a Christ follower that feel as if you're being dragged back into brokenness, back into bondage, back into death. In Christ, you've been freed, but there are aspects, experiences, and areas in your life that you're not yet free. And I think this is what's going on in Romans 6 as well. When Paul writes that in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin, we're freed. But at the same time, he calls us not to sin. Don't let sin reign your bodies anymore. In other words, he's saying it's possible to be objectively freed in Christ but subjectively not yet living free. And I wonder what this might look like for you. Where are you freed in Christ, but not yet living free? Perhaps it's in those recurring intentional sins. The enslaving habits that you just can't quit. Those devastating addictions that you just can't say no to, or those regressive ways of thinking about God, about others, and about yourself. Maybe it's in alcohol, in pornography, anger, all of which steal your joy, leaving you feeling bitter, guilty, and hopeless. These recurring sins distort our identities. They destroy our relationships and they drag us back into bondage. So where are you freed in Christ, but not yet living free? Perhaps it's in the effects of sin. The reality of living in a broken world with failing bodies, anxious minds, loss of loved ones. Perhaps it's in fear. Anxiety, loss. Or maybe it's in the sin that others have committed against you. 
broken and hurt people who have hurt you through no fault of your own. Maybe it's betrayal, abuse, broken trust, all of which leave us feeling broken, dirty, used goods, and too far gone, or making us believe that God was and is distant, that he's removed from our pain, that he's unloving and he's not good. Brothers and sisters, I don't say this lightly, but could it be that God in Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, could it be that God has freed you from the very things that are still enslaving you today? That he's partnering with you, journeying with you, there with you, calling you to trust him, to trust in him towards living a life of freedom. Where are you freed in Christ, but not yet living free? Because his grace is sufficient for you today. One of the things that can happen as well is that when we're in the middle of our struggles or our addictions or our pain, is that we can let our present circumstances cloud our memory of God's past faithfulness. Would you look with me to verses 10 to 12? As the old slave master approaches, together with the overwhelming size and power of his army, the Israelites cry out to God in utter desperation. But notice what they say to Moses, though, in verses 11 and 12. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us up to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out to Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. But what is significant is that when you look back in the Exodus story, there's no account of the Israelites ever saying, we want to stay in Egypt. No, when Moses rocks up, none of them are saying, no, thank you, Moses. We're actually living our best lives here in Egypt. It's fulfilling all of our dreams, and we're flourishing as a people. No, there's nothing like that. In fact, as you look in Exodus 3, we see that the Israelites did cry out to God. The exact same phrase here in verse 10. They did cry out to God, but it was out of their misery and suffering under Egyptian bondage. In chapter 3, verse 7, it says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So what we have here are the Israelites reflecting back on their old lives before they were freed from God in a way that was completely untrue and unreal. In the midst of their present circumstances, the threat of Pharaoh's oncoming army, they had forgotten how destructive, degrading, and devastating their bondage was. And they'd forgotten how God had delivered them. And as Christians, we too, in the midst of our present very real, very painful circumstances, can forget just how destructive, degrading, and devastating our old lives were. And that in the midst of our pain, we might try and find a way to numb it in the very things that are causing us pain. We can forget how God has delivered us from the bondage of sin. And that if he was faithful then, he's still faithful now. So what are we getting out of? We're getting out of bondage that has many layers. That is that it's possible for us to be freed sons and daughters in Christ. Freed from the bondage of sin yet still live as slaves, still not yet living free. So how do we get out of it? 
Would you turn with me to verses 13 to 14? Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So Israel are cornered. The Red Sea is in front of them. Their old slave master Egypt is behind them, breathing down their necks. There's literally nowhere to go. They're in a desperate, seemingly hopeless situation. And how does Moses, their leader, respond? He says, be still. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt threatened by something or by someone. You know that feeling when you're being chased by a violent pack of vicious dogs? I don't know if that's ever happened to you. But can you imagine them barking ferociously with their razor-sharp teeth snapping at your ankles? What do you do? Or I wonder if you've been in an unfamiliar part of town or a new city, late at night, all by yourself, and all of a sudden, around the corner, a large group of men start approaching you. What do you do? Well, generally they say it's fight or flight. Either you take the threat head on and saying, I'm going to fight my way through these dogs, or you hope that you're just faster than the people around you. When faced with a threat, generally, we fight it or we flight it. But Israel couldn't do either. They couldn't try and fight the Egyptians. The Egypt's army was too big and too powerful. And they couldn't try and outrun the Egyptians because Egypt had horses and chariots, and the only thing that was in front of them was the Red Sea. They had hit a dead end. They were stuck. Yet it's into this hopeless situation that Moses says, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. Be still and watch. Israel, be still and watch. Why? And here's what's significant is because God will do your fighting for you. Israel, you can't do it. You can't perform it. You can't contribute to your salvation. Just stand still. You can't do a thing about your deliverance. God is going to do the whole thing. In other words, Israel, you can only be saved by grace. And friends, this is what Paul is getting at in Romans 4 verse 5 when he says, To the one who does not work, but who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. Just as Israel could not deliver themselves from slavery in Egypt, just as they could not deliver themselves from the threat of Pharaoh's oncoming army, so too we cannot deliver ourselves from the bondage of sin. Moreover, we cannot deliver ourselves from the many layers of the bondage of sin that we experience in our daily Christian lives. We're stuck, powerless, helpless, hopeless, bondage by grace and grace alone. So Moses' words in verses 13 to 14, we see a principle of grace. But what we see in the story of Israel crossing the Red Sea in verses 19 to 31 is a wonderful image of how that grace operates. It operates by crossing over. With your Bibles open, would you notice with me? Notice with me that on the one side of the Red Sea, the Israelites are within the reach of their old false masters. And in essence, they're under the sentence of death because Pharaoh and his army are coming, and they're coming to get them back. And if Israel resisted, then they'd just kill them. But on this side, they were reachable, able to be dragged back into bondage, under the sentence of death. But as soon as they had crossed over, 
When the Egyptians tried to pursue them, there was an invisible warrior in between them, stopping them. They were out of reach. Their old slave masters couldn't get to them anymore. And as they crossed over, they literally crossed over from death to life in a moment. They crossed over from being under the condemnation, bondage, and death to new life with God. And they did nothing. God did it all. Their salvation was only by grace. And friends, this is a picture of the gospel. It's the good news which stands at the foundation of our faith because we too are in a hopeless situation under the bondage of sin and the sentence of death, powerless, stuck with no way out, and through no work of our own, we have been saved, we've been rescued, we've been delivered, crossing over from death into life by grace and grace alone. It's why we can listen to Jesus' words in John 5 verse 24 that says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. To be a Christian is to acknowledge that the only thing I contributed to my salvation is my sin. My deliverance from sin and from all its power, its many layers, was all God. It was all unconditional kindness, all undeserved mercy, all incongruous grace. And if you're a non-Christian who's here today or joining us online, we're so glad that you're here. But if you were to ask me if you were investigating the claims of Christ and the Christian faith, what was the one distinct and unique thing about our faith? I'd say it's this. Where every other religion, be that sacred or be it secular, Every other religion centers on our working our way up to God, whether that God is yourself or a deity. Where our salvation is dependent on our works, how good we are, what we do. But in the gospel of Jesus, our salvation is dependent wholly on God. On how good, faithful, and loving he is, and on what he's done, we are sinners saved by grace. And I wonder if this point also serves as a bit of a rebuke and an encouragement to us as well. It serves as a rebuke to us Christians who slip back into a legalistic salvation based on works. And the tendency is subtle, but it looks like when your relationship with God, whether that be good or bad, is dependent on how well you are doing. If you've had a, a good day, you've been faithful that day, I read my Bible, I prayed, and I didn't tune my coworker when I should have, when they deserved it, but when you feel like you've had a bad day, when you're back in bondage, you've just sinned again, when the day was particularly hard, when the pain was especially difficult, then you feel distant from God. Where do you turn? Brother and sister, we're saved by grace. We come before God by grace. We live by grace. So don't put the chains of legalism back on. Israel had been saved by grace. They crossed over by grace. They are to live by grace. And so here's the point. If God had been faithful to deliver you from your greatest bondage, that being the penalty and power of sin and the sentence of death, if he had been faithful to deliver you from your greatest bondage, then you can trust him to be faithful with the many layers of bondage that you still experience today. Exodus is saying, stand still and see that God has already fought the big battle for you. 
It's already been accomplished. If you're a Christian, you've already crossed over. Sin and death have been dealt with, and all your other problems which are real and which are painful, with all their many layers of bondage, it puts everything in its rightful place. Might I suggest that instead of starting by looking at how big your issue is right now, start your journeys toward freedom with God by looking at what he's already done and put those issues in their rightful places. So what is Jesus' salvation according to the Red Sea? It's freedom from bondage, though it has many layers. How does this salvation come? It comes by grace and it comes by crossing over. But now, how do we apply Christ's salvation so that we are increasingly free from these bondage layers? And this leads us to point three. Why do we get out? Did you notice as we read that there were two sets of people who went through the waters? But why did only one get out? Why when the Egyptians went through the waters, they were killed, but when the Israelites went through the waters, they were saved? Why did Israel get out? And I think sometimes you might be tempted to think, well, Israel were the good guys. They got out because they were generally good people, and therefore that's why they were saved. And the Egyptians, well, they're the bad guys. They're the slave owners. Therefore, they deserve to be judged and die. But what happens when you read further along in Exodus, and actually the rest of the Old Testament, what you see is that Israel were really no better. They're constantly grumbling, moaning, and complaining. They're doubters, idol makers, and false worshippers. And you see their childishness here in our passage. But the fact is that they are not just childish, grumbling, doubting, idol worshippers. They're murderers as well. You'd only need to read further along in their story. In fact, the only difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians was that the Israelites didn't have as much power. They were no better. So the question becomes, why if God's waters of judgment are standing on both sides and they come down on the Egyptians rightly and justly, why didn't they come down on the Egyptians as well? Why Israel and not Egypt? I think the answer is because Israel had a mediator. Would you look back with me at verse 10? So here we see that Israel cries out to God. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. So the Israelites were the ones crying out. But their moaning seems to come from a place of rebellion. It comes from a lack of trust in God's faithfulness and in his word. And they cry out, we wish we were back in Egypt. But then you jump down to verse 15, and this is what God says. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Egyptians to move on. Now, this comes across as strange. God rebukes Moses, but there's no indication that Moses was one of the people crying out. In fact, Moses was the one who had just told the people to stand firm, and God will fight for them. So the question becomes, why? Why does God do this? And to add further spice to the pot, why don't you look at verse 21? In the very same verse, we're told that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, but before the verse is over, it says that all the night, all that night, the Lord drove back the sea. And the same thing seems to be happening in verses 26 and 28. Moses is doing something, but God seems to be doing it as well. What's going on here? I think here, in Moses, you have one man that is so identified with the Israelites 
that their guilt is upon him. And at the same time, you have a man so identified with God that God's power is coming through him. He's a man in the middle of sorts. He's so identified with the people that he gets rebuked for their sin, and he's so identified with God that he's a vehicle of his saving power. Why do Israel get out of bondage? Israel get out of bondage, out of slavery. They cross over through the waters only by grace because they have a mediator. Moses, this one man, is able to represent all the people of Israel and yet also represent God. But we know a better mediator. In Jesus Christ, we don't have a mediator who is just fully man and close to God. In Jesus, we have a mediator who is fully God and fully man. And not just that, in Jesus, we don't have a mediator who is rebuked because of his own sin. In one verse, there's nothing. In Jesus, we have the true and greater Moses, the true and greater mediator, who's not just associated with fallen men and women, but who is fully man, and is not just associated with God, but who is fully God. In Jesus, we have one who does not only divide the waters that we may walk on dry ground, but who goes into the waters of judgment, judgment that we deserved. He's plunged into the full weight of God's wrath and judgment on sin for you and for me. He gives up his life. He takes the judgment that should be ours and gives us the righteousness and life and freedom that should be his alone. And through him we cross over from death to life. So as a Christ follower, we are saved from the bondage of sin and all its layers by grace, by crossing over because we have a mediator who stood in the gap and who still stands in the gap for us. Now I've already taken too much of your time, but to close here are some quick fire practical steps that I think we can take. Much more could be said, but here's four. Number one, get it out in the open. Admit your struggle. Acknowledge your pain. Confess your sin. Bring to light what has been in darkness because there's freedom, power, and peace that comes as we bring before God and others the things that, we've, that have held us in bondage for too long. Tell God about it. Tell others who you trust about it. The church is a community. Let's live as one and get your stuff out in the open. Secondly, similarly and related to the first is number two, get help. By God's grace and by his strength, move towards prayer, people, and professionals. Be proactive about making your weaknesses known and be proactive about seeking practical help to be journeying with God to address your issues. We're not meant to do this alone. So walk through this together with people who you trust, people who love you, and maybe people who know something about what you're going through. Maybe consider going online to our website and uh, joining one of our redemption groups or celebrate recovery, which happens here every Thursday evening. Or even the new program that began about a month ago called Breaking Ground. Or what about creating an accountability group amongst your brothers and sisters in your life group? Get together. 
do something. Maybe think about going through a book related to that specific thing that God is calling you to move on from. Um, at the moment, I am going through this book, which is a daily devotional by um, John Elmore called Freedom Starts Today, Overcoming Struggles and Addictions One Day at a Time. Get a book, read it together, pray it, do something. And lastly, and maybe this is maybe the most important thing about getting help that's been important for me, is go and see a counselor. Go see a biblical counselor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, whoever. We actually all need counseling. And it's not just for the big things either. What would Common Ground South Penn look like if, by God's grace and in his strength, we moved towards freedom in practical steps, in the freedom which God offers to us? If you're not sure where to start, ask. Ask God, ask your life group leaders, ask our eldership couples. We've, we have great God-given resources, both written, spiritual, and physical. So make the most of them. Number three, get going today. The call is to start now, today. Don't wait to reach out for help. Let that loved one know. Send that message. Make that decision now and then do it. And do it one day at a time because that's all we are created to do and called to do. Nothing more. His grace is sufficient for today. Let tomorrow worry about itself. And lastly, have grace on yourself to go slow. Yes, we know and are known and are loved by a God who can and who does intervene immediately, freeing us from our struggles in a moment. However, in my short amount of life, what I've seen is that generally God in his infinite wisdom is a long-suffering God, that he's patient with us in our afflictions and in our struggles and in our pain. He's not in a rush. And he loves you enough to take his time to form you and free you into who you are in Christ Jesus. We're sinners. We mess up daily. But that doesn't mean that we need to be slaves in bondage. Brother and sister, would you be still and know that God will fight for you? He will deliver you. Why? Because he has fought for you and won. And he has delivered you in Jesus' death and resurrection. Sin and death are defeated, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We're saved by grace. Amen. And amen.